So over the past several years, there's been a massive increase in Hallmark movie viewership, especially around Christmas time. Now, it used to be that Hallmark movies were a big joke. Oh, they're so predictable and trite and sappy and poorly acted. All true. Uh, but now there's, there's become this, this uh, subculture, this entire subculture surrounding these movies. In fact, this, this Christmas, Hallmark is releasing 41 new Christmas films. I'm not sure if you knew that. 41. And it's like 41 isn't enough. People are just clamoring for more. And, and the question is, what's the appeal? Why have these movies become so popular? There's actually been studies done on this, by the way. People have spent money to figure this out. And the appeal is, well, on one hand, the appeal is escapism. You know, y'all, the world is harsh and demanding, and Hallmark isn't. Hallmark is easygoing and sweet. It doesn't demand anything from us, and that's why it's appealing. But deeper than that, greater than that, the appeal is that all of these movies are about wish fulfillment. They're about wish fulfillment. All the movies are, are basically have people who are kind of lost in life. She is really dedicated to her work, and she's up for a big promotion, but she's not really sure who she is anymore. And he, he's, he's a widower. His wife has died, and he's got to raise his daughter now all by himself. They're both too busy and distracted for love. But thanks to the charms of a small town, they're brought together. Y'all have seen these movies. They're brought together... And they finally realize what, what truly matters, and they fall in love. And here's the reality. We all wish this is how life really was. It's wish fulfillment, where everybody's ambitions and dreams find their way in the end, where, where all tragedy ends in triumph, where all conflicts are easily resolved, where love really happens, where, where love is really found. And, and it's all kind of neatly wrapped up in just two hours, right? Now, I don't want to spoil your opinion of Harvest Church, but, but two of our three elders here actually really like Hallmark movies. One of, one of them is me, and I'm going to let y'all take bets as to who the other one is between Jay and Paul. That ought to be fun. Y'all can figure it out. Uh, he, why am I talking about Hallmark movies? Here's the truth about the way a lot of people, a lot of people approach faith and religion, just like a Hallmark movie. We approach faith so often as cosmic wish fulfillment. We all want to believe that somebody out there loves me and wants me to have a good life. We all like to believe that, that if there is a God, then that God can be appeased, and if I'm simply a good and sincere person, then God will make sure that things go well for me, that my, that my wishes get fulfilled. And, and to the degree that, that, um, that Americans kind of approach faith and religion, this is, this is the kind of faith and religion we like to hold. That, that we like God, we believe in God, we want God around, but only in as much as God blesses us and fulfills us, and then pretty much stays out of the way. Right? I want God to love me, bless me, and help me along my ambitions and dreams, but then, for the most part, he can, he can go and do whatever else he wants to do, right? That's all I need from him. You know, that's, that's how a lot of people view faith. But, y'all, the, the amazing thing is when we actually open up the Bible, we don't find a God like that at all. Even when we open up to the most hallmarky of the Bible stories, the sweetest story in the Bible, the Christmas story, 
we still find a God that's different than what we would expect. We actually find God to be quite intrusive and even abrasive and unpredictable when we look at the Christmas story. Uh, God, God doesn't exist just to kind of hover over us and sprinkle down blessings. God doesn't just exist to make sure things go our way and fulfill our wishes. What God does is he breaks into the world to fulfill his good eternal purpose. He's not so much concerned with making sure that we're all happy and comfortable. God wants to bring eternal life to us through his son Jesus. And that requires something different than mere wish fulfillment. That requires God breaking through. So we're going to continue a conversation we really started last week. We looked at Isaiah 9 last week about how light pierces through the darkness. Those who were sitting in darkness have seen a great light because unto us a child is born, a son has been given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. That great prophecy in Isaiah 9. Well, now we're going to, we're going to carry on the same conversation, but we're going to fast forward about 700 years to Luke chapter 1. The actual fulfillment of the light entering into the world. And specifically today, I want us to look at the proclamation of the angel Gabriel to the Virgin Mary. If ever there was a hallmark story in the Bible, this would be it, right? And yet, if we pay attention to it, we see a lot more than than meets the eye. So look with me at Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, I mentioned this last week. At this point in history, in Israel's history, there had been an extended period of what we might call divine silence. God had not spoken through an angel or through a prophet or a book of the Bible, nothing effectively for about 400 years. It was a time of great darkness, of great wandering for the people of God. And yet right here, in this backwoods town of Nazareth, Nazareth was was the butt of people's jokes. When, When it was said that Jesus was from Nazareth, someone made the comment, can anything good come from there? That's the kind of place this is. And in the home, not of a a well-to-do person, but in the home of a poor, unknown girl, the angel Gabriel enters in. God breaks his silence. And you notice this. Mary was not performing any kind of special ritual. Mary wasn't praying any special prayer. She wasn't doing anything that would conjure up the presence and the power of God. She wasn't out looking for God. God initiates. God sends the angel to her unprovoked. And then Gabriel says, Greetings, favored one. Hail Mary, full of grace. He says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, there's a a long-standing misconception that right here the angel is congratulating Mary for being amazing, for being wonderful, as if Mary is a cut above the rest of humanity And so she's so pure and godly that she's earned the right to be called the mother of God. Um, But no, listen, when when Gabriel says that Mary is favored, 
That is, Luke wrote in the Greek language, that, that is a Greek word, keratao, and that word means to be endowed with grace. This is not something that a human being can earn or achieve. This is something that God has the exclusive right to offer. She's favored, which means God has set his grace upon her. So the emphasis, we don't, we don't diminish Mary as if she was nothing. Of course not. But the emphasis in the story really isn't about Mary, not chiefly. It's really about God. This is God's grace set upon this woman. And, and right away, even, even before the action really gets started in the story, we get a glimmer of what we call the gospel, the good news, that God freely and lovingly pursues Mary, not as a reward for her goodness. This is not her earned reward. This is simply an expression of God's goodness, that God enters in through his angel and declares, proclaims over her his grace and his favor. He sets it upon her as a gift. She didn't ask for it. She didn't have to. It was God's free choice. And here's, if you think about the Christmas story, again, it's very sweet in our estimation. We've, we've heard it maybe so many times, and, and we sing songs about it. It's very precious. But the Christmas story, at its root, is actually very intrusive, isn't it? God barges in. He doesn't even knock first. He doesn't ask for permission. He just comes right in and declares his purpose. And that's how I like to think about Christmas. It's a little bit more of abrasive language to say that at Christmas, God barges in. Not just to Mary's home, but into the world. Grace barges in. Unannounced, unprovoked. This is God's free choice to bring his light into the world. And aren't we glad? At Christmas time, grace barges in. And then, and then Gabriel attends to his business. He's given his greeting, but now the announcement. Look at verse 31. He says to Mary, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, how's that for an assignment? I'm not sure that what's the craziest thing God has ever instructed you to do. It's probably not as crazy as this right here. That you're going to bear, Mary, in your womb, the son of the Most High, one who is going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now, Mary, as a good Jewish girl, would have known exactly who the angel was talking about. This is the Messiah. This is the one who's come to deliver Israel and ultimately to deliver the world. Now, what kind of promise? When, when Gabriel gives her the promise, he could have stopped it simply saying, he is going to be the son of the Most High. But he goes into more detail than that. He tells her that he's going to sit upon the throne of David and reign over the house of Jacob. Now, again, Mary would have understood what Gabriel was talking about, but it's less obvious maybe to us, unless we're super-duper familiar with God's promises in the Old Testament and how they're fulfilled this is, this is the reason I prayed through uh, Psalm 89 earlier, is because in Psalm 89, we're actually given a, a great indication of what this means, that Jesus, the Savior, is going to sit on the throne and reign over the house of Jacob. Okay? So let's see what this means. These are words that I read from Psalm 89, where God is speaking and God says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant, 
I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. So God makes a promise. He makes a promise to David. We all know who King David is, right? I'm going to establish your throne forever, God says. But how? How's that going to happen? Is there supposed to be an unbroken succession of David's sons and his lineage on through the generations forever? No, there isn't one. And we understand that that's not what actually God was promising. And here's what's interesting. Later on in that very same psalm, I'm going to quote to you from Psalm 89, verse 30, where God continues to speak about this promise. Listen, this is fascinating. The Lord says, if his, if David's sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. This is what we call an unconditional covenant. A conditional covenant is a promise made between two parties. If you do what you promise, and if I do what I promise, then we'll meet in the middle and we'll all be satisfied. An unconditional covenant is something unique to God, whereby God makes a promise, and we make a promise too. David's sons made a promise. But do you see what happens right here in in Psalm 89? What God says, God says, if you break your promise, if you break your covenant faithfulness, you will be punished, but the covenant will remain. I will not break my end of the covenant, God says. Even if you're unfaithful to me, I will be faithful to what I have promised. I will keep up my end even if you fail on your end. Unconditional promise. And so what happens if David's sons break the covenant? And they did. God still fulfills it. What happens if there's not a man found worthy to sit on the throne of David forever? God says, I'll furnish one. I will provide one who can sit on the throne and the government will rest on his shoulders. And so Gabriel looks to Mary in this moment. He explains what this son is going to accomplish. And he says you're going to name him Jesus. Now, this is interesting. Why wouldn't Gabriel just leave it up to Mary what the son's name would be? Why can't she name it after her father or her father's father and keep it in the family? Why be so specific, Gabriel? Because of what the the name of Jesus means. Jesus, Yeshua, means God saves. God saves. This is God's way of saying, I'm fulfilling the covenant on your behalf. Though you have failed, I will not a son will be given, and he will sit on the throne. God saves. Y'all, as great as David was, God never put his faith in David. Certainly God didn't put his faith in David's sons. God, ultimately, even in this story, God's not putting his faith in Mary. Wonderful as Mary surely was. No, God is saying that your hope is not within you. It's not within me. It comes from outside of us. God has to put his son on the throne for us. And before he can put his son on the throne, he chooses to put his son in Mary's womb. 
Now, this is where the, I mean, if the story wasn't already weird, if you've heard the Christmas story enough times, then maybe you're like me, and you just kind of nod and smile at this point. Like, there's nothing weird going on here. That God's going to impregnate a human woman miraculously. Like, that's, yes, yes, that's exactly how it happened, you know. Like, that's not strange. It's, it's, it's one of the stranger things in the scripture. In fact, if you, if you uh, talk to what we might call liberal Christians, more liberal Christians, people who believe in Jesus, but they, if you start talking about things like the virgin birth, they get real uncomfortable a lot of times because it's an embarrassing thing. And they gloss over, they flat out deny it. But we don't. We actually hold to the virgin birth still today. Strange as it is, miraculous as it is, we hold to it because we believe it. Now, if you think it's hard to believe for us, know also that it was hard for Mary. Look at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? She understood the strangeness of this promise. And this isn't for her a lack of faith. This is just, it's a genuine question. How is this going to take place? This doesn't, this isn't rational or logical or biological. And so the angel answers, verse 35. He said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. She was pregnant with John the Baptist. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. How's this going to happen? Gabriel says, the power of God through his spirit will overshadow you. Now, that's not a unique concept in in the Bible. Um, When the people of God, the Israelites, were set free from slavery to Egypt, and they were wandering through the promised land, God was there with them. His glory overshadowed them, the scripture tells us. He was a pillar of fire by night above them and a pillar of cloud by day to shadow them. His glory was with them. Uh, In the the Gospels, when Jesus takes Peter, John, and James up on the mount and he's transfigured before them in glowing white and there Moses and Elijah are there with him, it says that the glory of the Lord surrounded them in that moment. The, The idea being that God's glory is something beyond us more powerful than our imagination. And and when Gabriel says to Mary, the power of God is going to graciously come upon you to overshadow you, Mary, and therefore that which is impossible with man will not be impossible to God. You don't need normal human means to accomplish this. God will accomplish this through his glory. And I mentioned that we believe, we hold to the virgin birth. It's not for us a doctrine that we just kind of sweep into the, under the rug because, you know, modern people can't believe stuff like that anymore. No, we hold to it. And not just because the Bible says it's so, but because the virgin birth is significant for our understanding of who Jesus is. I want to give you just a couple of really quick things here. There's a lot more to it than this. But just a couple of layers of our understanding of the virgin birth. First... It's meant to show us plainly that Jesus' birth is supernatural. Jesus is not just a good man, a good teacher, that had the anointing of God like maybe a prophet or a king. He's not just a great version of us, 
No, he is the divine son of God, and the virgin birth is an exclamation point on that uh, reality. Secondly, we, we see in Jesus' birth both the fullness of deity, divinity, and humanity, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Uh, there's a, a pastor theologian guy named Wayne Grudem. He says it like this, that God in his wisdom ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ so that Jesus' full humanity would be evident from the fact that he was born in an ordinary way from a human mother, but also his full deity would be evident to us in the fact that his conception in Mary's womb was accomplished by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Fully God and fully man. And then thirdly, something I mentioned a moment ago, the virgin birth shows us that the solution to our problem, our sin problem, has to come from outside of us. It has to come from beyond us. Uh, David, we've talked a little bit about David. He said in the Psalms about himself, I was conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. David is making a powerful point about the fact that when a human being is born, even before we've made any decisions at all, right or wrong, when a human being is born, we are already in need of redemption. We are not born holy and righteous and perfect. We are in need of a Savior from day one. And so the virgin birth is something that shows to us that Jesus did not come into the world just like us. He didn't come infected with a sin nature like us. He was born through a woman, yes, but it was through the power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, Gabriel says, the child will be holy. Unlike you and me, the child will be pure from the beginning. There will be no sin in him, no corruption in his heart. He will prevail in righteousness from the very beginning. This is who he is. Somebody has to be holy in our place. The solution to sin has to come from outside of us. And therefore, Jesus arrives into the world through a virgin's womb. Now, we see... the. We, I talk about the, the fact that Hallmark movies are so predictable, and they surely are. We all know how it's going to end. Do you see, though, in the, in the Hallmark story, the Christmas story in the Bible, what we try to make into a Hallmark story? It doesn't, it's not, it, there's nothing predictable about this. God is continually working against the current at every turn. That, we, that God brings a Savior into the world at a time no one expected. In a place no one expected through a person no one would have expected, and in a way no one would have expected. Y'all, God, God does not send Jesus into the world simply to fulfill our wishes. If so, the Christmas story would read very differently. No, God comes in the power of his Spirit to fulfill his purpose. And had he not initiated, had he not done it this way, you and I would still be lost in darkness. We'd still be without salvation. This is what God chose to do in a way that we would have never guessed. He didn't come to fulfill our wishes, but to fulfill his eternal purpose. And, and this, this is why the hallmark version of faith just won't do. This, this idea that, that surely there's someone out there that loves me and just wants me to have a wonderful life. Surely God can be easily satisfied, and if I'll just be good and sincere, 
And God will do, it will, he'll, will, he'll hold up his end of the bargain and reward me for being good. But y'all understand this, the focus of that kind of faith is not on God at all. It's on me. It's not about God's glory. It's about my glory. It's about my wish fulfillment. My happiness is the goal. And if that's my perception of God, then, then I have to fashion for myself a God who exists for me, who conforms himself to me. That's the whole point. If there's somebody out there that loves me and wants me to be happy, then all that really matters is how my happiness plays itself out, right? As if that's the reason that being, that God, exists in the first place, right? It's not about him, it's about me. And in that case, that God is not allowed to contradict me That God is not allowed to tell me things I don't like or things I don't want to hear. That God is not allowed to disagree with my lifestyle or intrude upon my ambitions, right? Because he exists to bless me and to help me along. Now, I understand the appeal of that. I'm sure we all do. That in our humanness, that sounds pretty good to have somebody like that looking out for us, sprinkling blessings on us as we go, right? But that is not the God of the Bible, I don't like the thought thought of God being intrusive and invasive. I don't like to reckon with my sins. I, I, I don't like to have to conform my life to someone else's plan and standard, right? I want God to conform to me. But there is no such God. Not the God that we come to when we open up the Scripture. The real God, the one true God, has not left himself up to our imagination. The one true God has not given us an ambiguous understanding of him, and we've got to fill in the gaps and make him into our own image. No. God has decisively revealed himself to us in the person of his son Jesus. No one has seen God at any time, John chapter 1 says, but Jesus Christ has explained him, has revealed him. We see who he really is because we've seen Jesus. That's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's been revealed. We're even told what to call him. Call him Jesus. God who saves. God who enters into the world on our behalf and reveals his purpose in a person, the one who came to save us. You know, I, it, it, um, for me, the, the, I call it a hallmark kind of version of faith. I think you probably know what I mean by that. It's such an easier thing for us to palate. It's such an easier thing for us to take in. It's an easy thing to desire to want, right? Because ultimately, we look at a broken world, and sure, I'd like for the problems out there to get fixed, but I've got enough problems in here that I want fixed, and I just wish God would go ahead and fix them, right? But God works in a way that's, that's counter to our intuition. It's counter to our human desire. God doesn't say, Kyle, I'm going to sprinkle blessings on you and help you out. God says, I'm going to intrude upon your life to make you new. Not to fix your temporary problems, but to solve your sin problem and make you a child of the Most High. And that's the far greater thing. And so Christmas reminds us that God is not into easy answers to difficult problems. It took God himself entering into the world to save us, but that's what he chose to do. And gladly he did it through his son. 
And so how should we respond to this kind of God, to this kind of intrusive, gracious God? Well, let's, let's take a cue from Mary, why don't we? Mary really shines in this story in verse 38. Behold, she says, the bond slave of the Lord. She's talking about herself. May it be done to me according to your word. Y'all, I, can you even imagine the fear and the, the anxiety, the questions that Mary would have had in this moment? I mean, this is, she had no, this is hitting her like a ton of bricks. You know, scholars suggest that she was maybe 13, 14 years old. This, this, this is terrifying, we have to imagine. Whatever dream and vision she had for her life has now gone out the window. She's been given a new assignment, an assignment unlike anyone in the world history has ever known. And yet her response, maybe a, maybe a trembling response, probably, and yet her response, though, is, is one of great faith, amazing faith. She says, Lord, I'm yours. Look, the bond slave of the Lord, that's me. I belong to you, God. Use me as you wish. Fulfill your plan in me. Let it be so. Um, Mary does not insist that God conform to her. She conforms herself to him. And if we continue through Luke chapter 1, if you read through the rest of the chapter, we see that Mary was overjoyed to do this. She wasn't moping around that this was her assignment. She She was out of her mind rejoicing that God would give this kind of grace to her and use her in this way. And this has to be our response as well. Listen, when when God intrudes in our lives, he does it out of a love so great that we can't even imagine. The richness of God's love, that he so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. We thank God that he barges in, right? We thank God that he's not, he doesn't exist to just conform himself to our whims and ambitions, but he brings his own glory to bear in our lives. We've failed our end of the covenant. Surely we have. But he has not failed his end. He has put his son on the throne. He has brought to us a king, one who saves his people and reigns over us both now and forevermore. And so as God brings this truth to bear, the intrusive, invasive, unpredictable reality of Christmas... Would we receive it that it might change our hearts and lives? This is not meant to be like Hallmark, that at the end everything gets tied up in a nice bow. (sighs) Wasn't that sweet? No, when God sends his son into the world, it changes everything. It changes not just what we believe. It changes not only our eternal destiny, but it changes how we live in the in-between. That now I belong to him. Behold the bond slave of the Lord. Let your will be done in my life. Fulfill, God, all your good purpose in me, for you have sent your Son on my behalf. Would that kind of faith soak deeply into our hearts, that we might see God in all of his glory come for us and offer up our lives in exchange? Behold, use me as you wish. Fulfill all your good purpose in me this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, this morning we have right before us a very familiar story. And so, Father, protect our hearts this morning from familiarity and just smiling and nodding at the sweetness of what we've read. This is 
earthquake, powerful, world-changing truth. It didn't just change Mary. It didn't just change the climate of Israel. It, cha- it, it continues to change everything right here where we sit. That unto us a son has been given. A light has pierced our darkness. And his name is Jesus. His name is God saves. Father, would you intrude upon us right now with this truth? Would you barge right in to our church, to our hearts, to our families, that we might behold your glory in a fresh way and be amazed that you would love us this much, that you would, Lord, not be content to sprinkle blessings on us from above, but to enter in to our darkness and give us life, to make us children of the Most High by sending your Son. Father, I pray that you give us a heart and a deep sense this this morning of awe. We know that we are unworthy. We have violated the covenant. We have not been faithful to you as you deserve. But Lord, you have not treated us as we deserve because of your faithfulness and your commitment to do what you said you would do, to sit a man on the throne of David forever. Jesus Christ, the only one worthy who sits on a throne, Lord, because he came through a cross and he died on our behalf. Lord, give us a faith that doesn't just believe this, but that responds. That we would be your bondservants and, Lord, that we would say to you, fulfill all your good purpose in us. May it be, Lord, as you wish, that we would be his disciples with everything we have. And we pray it in Christ's precious and mighty wonderful name. Amen.